Okay, hey guys, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel is where we will find ourselves this morning. So flip to the Old Testament is where we will be, Ezekiel chapter 36. If you don't have your own Bible, the, there should be several pew Bibles in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't have access to either of those, uh, the text should be up on the screen. And so we find ourselves in the book of Ezekiel chapter 36 is where we will be this morning as we continue on in our series, New You in the New Year, as God desires to work through us, through the new covenant, through faith in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to make us new people. Indeed, God is making all things new, and he's doing it through the new covenant. We've been exploring some of the provisions of the new covenant. We've been looking at some of the resources that God has given us to make us into new people. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we saw that God has given us a new power. That is, he supernaturally, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, enables us, propels us towards obedience where we could not before. Last week, we saw that not only does God give us a new power, but he gives us a new proximity. That is, he draws us into a close, intimate, father son, father-daughter relationship with himself. And as we draw near to God and we behold his glory, we change into his likeness from glory to glory, Paul says. And so we've seen a couple ways that God makes us new in the new year, a new power and a new proximity. Today we're going to look at the third resource of the new covenant, and I will call it a new passion, a new passion. And so hopefully you're with me now in Ezekiel chapter 36. We will read verses 24 through 28, and then we'll focus in a little bit on verse 26 as we look at this new passion that God has given us for him. So let's pray once again, and then we'll dive right into this new covenant text in the book of Ezekiel. So if you would pray with me one more time. Father, we ask that you would bless our time now. Uh, indeed, as we open up this Bible, we recognize that we don't hold a mere book into, in our hands, but uh, it's unlike any other book. It's your inspired, uh, God-breathed, uh, inerrant scripture, and you speak to us through this word. And so we humble ourselves, and we quiet ourselves before you, and we ask that you would speak through your word to us. Father, I pray that you would help me that you would enable me and guide me by your Holy Spirit to speak things that are accurate, things that are truthful, things that are impactful. And I pray for my hearers today. Ultimately, they're hearing you. And so help them to hear your word, to be transformed by it, to be renewed in their spirit if they're Christians, to be reminded that they have indeed uh, been given a new heart with new passions and new desires. And I pray, Father, if there's someone here, man or woman, boy or girl, who does not have a, a, a real and living relationship with you through personal faith in your son, in his life, his perfect life for them, and his death on the cross, and his resurrection power, by faith and faith alone, I pray that today would be the day that you take their heart of stone and that you would give them a heart of flesh that loves you, that desires to glorify you, and that deeply longs to be compliant with your will. And so would you move among us? Would you be well pleased by what we do? We thank you for the day, and we ask it in the name of our God, in the name of our Savior, in the name of the one who initiates this new covenant by which all things will eventually be made new. The name above all names, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. I want to begin this morning with a a simple question. It's a question that I think all of us deal with because we all eat. And the question is this, what is the type of food, maybe there's one in particular, maybe there's a lot of different types of foods, what type of food do you just despise? 
Think about it just for a second. Hopefully there are a few things that immediately pop to your mind. The kind of foods that you just hate. The kind of foods that when you simply think of them, uh, nonetheless even maybe get a whiff of them in your nostril. They make you want to puke. Okay, you, you, have, you have that in your mind, that kind of food. I don't know if there's anything you loathe so strongly, but there is something that I loathe so strongly, and it is the food called olives. Now if you're an olive lover, I'm sorry, I... I just hate them, okay? Uh, they make me want to gag. I can't even stand the smell of them. I can't be 10 feet near them. I just hate them. They make me want to vomit. Now, you know, olives are not intrinsically bad, and at some point I was articulating my dislike of olives to someone, and they said, oh, is that just, well, what about, you know, just the black ones or, or the green ones? And I said, they're equally despicable to me. You know, they, I loathe them both equally. They just make me want to gag. So how about you? What are some of the food types or maybe specific foods that you just dislike? This is open share time, so I want you to feel free in this short time period to shout out the kind of food that just makes you sick. Go ahead. Liver. Liver. <laughs> cottage cheese. Okay, one at a time. Cottage cheese. What else? Oysters. Oh, okay. Oysters. What else? Mushrooms. Oh, I see. I love mushrooms. Mushrooms. What else? What? I don't even know what that is, Herb. I'm sorry, but I'm sure it's gross. <laughs> what else? Cow tongue. Have you actually had cow tongue before? Oh, okay. Well, then fair enough. I think I would hate cow tongue too. Tomatoes. I'm, tomatoes is a second close for me, okay? I, I dislike tomatoes quite a bit. Anything else? Okay. So sufficient to say that most of us, if not all of us, have a particular kind of food that we just don't like. It makes us want to gag, right? So I want you to think about that kind of food just for a minute, and hopefully you won't gag, but think about eating that food. Think about putting it in your mouth. Think about smelling it. A big whiff comes into your nostrils. Just think about that. Now, don't puke or anything, but just, just think about that. What would it take? What would it take for you to become a lover of the kind of food that you hate? What would it take for me, uh, for instance, what would it take for me to become an olive lover? What would it take for me to acquire possibly a taste for those lovely black olives and those hideously disgusting green olives? What would it take for me just to become a lover of olives? Well, for some things, of course, there are acquired tastes, and so you could eat it enough so that maybe you acquire a taste for it. But most likely, most likely, if you really hate something, you just don't have the taste for it, right? You just don't have the taste buds in your tongue that you've been given to like that food. You just inherently don't like it. And so what would it take for you to become a mushroom, tomato, fish, whatever it is, lover? Well, one th way that you could potentially go about doing that is, is to get a kind of transplant known as a tongue transplant. I actually looked it up, and they can do this. You can get a tongue transplant. Now, I don't know if they'll give anybody a tongue transplant simply to like olives or whatever food you don't like, but you can get a, a new tongue, if it were, and when you got that new tongue, you would have to get a new tongue that inherently in its taste buds delighted in that which you formerly hated. So I would have to receive a tongue transplant that had the taste buds that just had a notch, a notch, a, a penchant, a, just a hunger for olives. And the same would be with you. We would need a tongue transplant. Where I'm going with this this morning is that if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, you've been born again, 
by the Spirit of God and you've come to place your faith in Jesus Christ, did you know that something similar has happened to you? The Bible tells us that if you are a Christian, you have received not a tongue transplant, but what the Bible calls a heart transplant, a new heart. The heart that you had, the heart that you had before, the Bible says, had an inherent dislike for God. The heart that you had before you became a Christian did not have a taste, so to speak, for the things of God. It did not like God. It did not want God. It did not have a taste for his will or obedience to him. But when you came to faith in Christ, this third resource of the new covenant, which I call a new passion, God gave you. God gave you a new heart with an ever-present desire, both for him and his will. And so if you have your Bibles open with me, let's turn now to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel is what I would consider the second major new covenant passage. We've been looking at Jeremiah chapter 31 via Hebrews chapter 8, but there's another major new covenant passage that we find in the Old Testament, and it's right here in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to read a little bit of the chapter, verses 24 through 28, just for context, and then we're going to focus in on verse 26, because that's where we find a portrayal a portrayal of this new passion. So let's read the text together. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. Here the prophet Ezekiel speaks most certainly to Old Testament Israel, and we're going to talk about how that applies to us in just a second. He says this, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. Here's the verse we'll focus on. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And that is the reading of God's holy word. Some of these verses, some of these ideas should be familiar to you because we see them over in Jeremiah. Now certainly the context demands that this speaks first and foremost to national Israel. That is, God was speaking uh, to the remnant of, of Israel long ago. He was speaking to those who had been in exile and he's promising a return. And so there's a historical context here. He is speaking to national Israel and he's speaking of a time where they will return to him. What we see historically is that certainly there was a return from Israel, uh, from captivity into their own land. But we look at these promises both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and what I don't think we see is a total fulfillment. We don't see all of the things happening that God promises both in Jeremiah and here in Ezekiel happening to national Israel. And what we do see happening, as I explained a few weeks ago, is that this new covenant, Jesus Christ says, I'm going to initiate it with my life and my death and my burial and my resurrection and all of those who want to be a part of this new covenant, both Jew and Gentile, that is if you're Jewish or if you're not, which is probably most of us in here, we can get in on this new covenant. We can be a part of the spiritual blessings of this new covenant. And what we see is we read throughout scripture that most likely these promises given to Israel, the part that has not happened yet, will happen. God will be faithful to his word upon the return of Christ to establish his kingdom on this earth. But all that to say is that this context, the spiritual blessings 
blessings are initiated in the cross. They're initiated with Jesus Christ. And we, as non-Jews, get to be a part of these spiritual blessings, one of which is this promise of a new passion. So let's hone our focus in just a little bit and look again at verse 26 because it describes this new heart, this new passion, this new desire that God is going to give us. So look with me again as we look at verse 26. This is the promise. Uh, This is the portrayal of this new passion. God says this, speaking to you and I now, I will give you a what, church? A new, a new heart. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. So if we stop there, we see the promise begins with something new. God is going to be doing something internally, inside of our hearts, and with our spirits. There's a need for a new heart. So that begs the question, why does God have to do that? Why is there uh, the need for something new? Because if the old was working, and if the old was sufficient, there was... There's really no need for something new. But God promises a new heart and a new spirit. And then he says, I will remove. This is language of a heart transplant. I will remove from you your heart of stone. So that's the old heart. He's comparing a new heart with the old heart. And he says, I'm going to take your old heart. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. And then he's going to give us a transplant. I will give you a heart of what, church? Flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. And this heart of flesh, he's describing this new heart and this new spirit. Now, when you look at the words, look at it again. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. What kind of language is this? From a biblical standpoint, a heart, when we talk about the heart of a person, my heart, your heart, it's kind of a holistic language. It's a holistic description. And so a heart in the Old Testament usually describes the whole person. That is all of who we are, our mind, our will, our emotions. It's everything inside of us, that non-physical part. And so God says, I'm going to give you a new mind. I'm going to give you a new will. I'm going to give you new emotions. In short, he says, I'm going to make a new you. I'm going to make a new person. And then he says, I'm going to put a new spirit within you. Oftentimes, the idea of a new spirit speaks of motivation. That is what is inside of us that drives us to action, that drives us to do things. And so in short, this promise of a new passion is God promising to give us a new heart. It's a promise of God making us new people with new motivations to obey him and to serve him. And so notice then the the comparison. He uses two images. I call this section a new passion portrayed because he portrays this heart transplant primarily with two images. Did you catch the images? He describes our old heart in a particular way and he describes our new heart in in, in a particular way. He says he's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. And what then, church, is that is that new heart. How is it described? It's at the tail end of of the verse. He says, I will give you a heart of flesh. And he compares this heart of flesh, this new heart, with the old one. And what is the old one like? What's the image that he uses? He says, I will remove from you your heart of what? Stone. I'm going to take the old heart, which was like a stone, and I'm going to give you a new heart, which is like a heart of flesh or a heart of, of skin type stuff. That's what he means by flesh. And so what I'm going to do at this point is have a little audience participation. I've asked uh, four of our, our children to come up and just to do a little experiment, a little object lesson with me. And so you four, 
You know who you are. Hopefully you're still here. Come on up at this point. Don't be shy. Come on up, and I'm going to ask you to stand just, just right here. So come on up, guys. I'm going to give you uh, f- each an object. And uh, as you come forward, I'm going to ask you a few questions about the object just to help us illustrate the difference between the old heart and the new heart. So you guys go ahead and stand in line there. And uh, I've got the objects right here. So I'm going to select certain objects to give to certain people. Here you go, Michaela. You get this. You get this. You get the rock, buddy. And you get the Play-Doh. Okay, so uh, what you have here is two, cer- two objects, and uh, each a couple kids have the objects. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Uh, for those of you with the Play-Doh, go ahead and take it out. Take it out of its Play-Doh carton. I will have to promise my son that he'll get his Play-Doh back <laughs> in, in one piece. So go ahead and take it out. And uh, I will take the, um, the holder because you're not going to need that. So go ahead and pull it out. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Oh, that, you're going to make me break my promise right there. Okay, one piece. Okay. So uh, we have two objects before you. I'm going to ask you just a few questions, guys, okay? Just a few questions. They're not, they're not, they're not difficult. The first question is um, kind of feel your object. Just kind of feel it for a little bit. How would you describe then the object that you're holding in your hands? What, what comes to mind? Michaela, what comes to mind? How would you describe that object? It's a rock. What is it? Is it hard? Very good. It's most certainly hard. What about you, Will? How would you describe your walk? Rock. Rough? Okay. It's rough. Absolutely. What about you two guys with the Play-Doh, the flesh-like stuff? It's soft. Okay. So one is hard and one is soft. Very good. Um, how, is the, uh, how does the texture feel? Um, there may be a slight difference. When you feel it, how's the temperature of your rocks, guys? How does it feel? Compared to the Play-Doh, how does it feel? Cold. Very good. So your rock, compared to the flesh-like Play-Doh, it's, it's pretty cold. Is that pretty cold? It's relatively cold. I, I ran out in the rain last night, and I got these two rocks, and so they were certainly cold when I got them. What about the Play-Doh? How would you describe that? Yours is a little cold, certainly. Do you think it's as cold as the rock, though? S- say no. Okay, good. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what about yours? Decently warm, especially when you start rubbing on it a little bit, right? Okay, you guys are doing excellent and are falling right into my trap. Um, so here's my last, my last thing. I'm going to give you guys a command, okay? I'm going to tell you to do something with your object, and I want you to do the best you can with it. And so this is the command. I want you to take your object, and I want you to make it into the shape of a worm. Go. Come on. Make it into a worm. Nope, sorry. No chisels. Make it into the shape of a worm. You've got to work hard. Hard to rock, guys. Come on. It's got to look like a worm. How are we doing, Play-Doh, folks? Doing pretty good? Okay. That's sufficient enough. Let's show everybody what... Okay. Michaela, did you make yours look like a... No? Okay. What about you? It's fat, but it still looks like a snake or a worm. Very good. Well, any luck there? I know. You didn't have chisels. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Worm-like? Oh, that's a skinny and long one. Very good. Okay. You guys did exactly what I wanted. Guys, give them a round of applause. You can leave your objects on the table. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay. 
Well, it's a simple illustration, but I think you know where I'm going with this. What is the contrast here? I mean, when God says your old heart, before you enter into this new covenant, before you come to faith in Christ, your old heart is like a rock. Well, how is it like a rock? Three things come to mind. Number one, rocks, generally speaking, uh, are cold, at least compared to something skin-like. They're cold. That is, we inherently, before we come to faith in Christ, turn the cold shoulder to God, and we give uh, a cold shoulder to God. We are not warm towards him as compared to the flesh. We turn our, our shoulder towards him. Secondly, not only are rocks cold, but as we just illustrated, they're unyielding. So when I ask the guys with the rock, to, to shape it and to do something with it, it was non-responsive. It didn't respond. It, it was unable to respond. And in a similar way, before we come to faith in Christ, this old heart uh, that is like a rock is unable to be shaped into God's standards. It's unresponsive. And so when God says, I want you to be this and I want you to do that, it's just like a rock. It doesn't bend. It doesn't move. It's unyielding. Not only is it cold, not only is it unyielding, but third, it's, it's without life. It's without life. Notice the comparison. He says, the old heart is like a rock, which is not living, and the new heart is like flesh. That is, it's, it's like something that's soft, skin that is, has life in it. And so what the Bible tells us is that not only is our, our stone heart cold and unyielding, but it's, it's dead. It's lifeless. There's no relationship with God. And so that's, that's the description of the, the stone heart. It's not very good. And so God says, if you want to know me, then something has to happen. There has to be a, a heart transplant. And so he says he will remove, think of surgically remove the heart, and he's going to put something else back in it. He's going to give us, he says, a heart of flesh. Now, as the kids illustrated, a heart of flesh is three things, I, I think at least. Number one, it's warm. It's warm. Flesh, because it has blood in it, is, it's, it's hot, it's warm. And so similarly, God says, I'm going to give you a heart that is warm towards me. It tur- instead of turning away from me, it turns towards me. It, instead of turning away from my will, it turns towards my will. So it's warm towards God. Secondly, it's yielding. This is something we saw most certainly with the Plato. When I gave it a command, you could shape it. You could mold it. And so when God says to our new heart, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to be. This is how I want you to think. It's soft. It's pliable. It's moldable. It bends towards the commands and standards of God. It's yielding. So it's warm, it's yielding. And then third, it's alive. As the stone was certainly dead, there's no life. A heart of flesh is alive towards God. There is spiritual life in this kind of heart. And so in short, how is this new passion, this new heart portrayed? I'd like to read you a quote. I don't know if that's up on the screen or not. It's from uh, Dwight Edwards. He has written a book And it's an excellent little book called The Revolution Within. And this is kind of how he sums up this new passion that is given to us when we become Christians. He he says it this way. He says, At the moment of your rebirth, God has given you a new set of godly inclinations, a divinely implanted disposition that always delights in doing his will, that can never be extinguished or diluted, though though it can be submerged beneath other competing passions. And so in short, what I hope we see this morning is a simple truth that the third provision that God has given us to make us new people in the new year through the new covenant, through faith in Jesus Christ, is a new passion. He takes a stony heart and he gives us heart transplant surgery and he gives us a heart of flesh. And so how do we 
flesh this out, no pun intended. What, what does this mean? How, how does this apply? How does it change the way we live our Christian lives? I'd like to move to the second major point of my sermon. I've called it the new passion performed. That is, how does this heart of flesh perform? How, what, is it, what does it look like in the Christian life? There are many implications, but I would like to suggest simply two general implications, two general applications that we can flesh out on our own and in the weeks to come. But number one, it changes how we view two things. So if you're taking notes, jot down a couple things under the new passion performed. It changes, number one, how we view obedience. This new passion, this new heart that God has given us changes how we view obedience as a Christian. And then secondly, it changes how we view sin. It changes how we view disobedience. And so I'd like to start with how it changes how we view obedience. So how do you view obedience as a Christian? I want you just to think about that for a second. When I say the word obedience, what comes to your mind? What does it mean to be an obedient Christian? What's the, what's the mindset? What's the perspective? I think oftentimes we have the mindset as a Christian of obedience as a have to. And most certainly to some degree it is a have to. God commands it. It's not a suggestion. God's word is not uh, generally ambiguous. When God says something, he means it and he wants us to do it. And so it's, it's, not, a, it's not a divine suggestion. It's an imperative. But, but how do we view that command? How do we view that prohibition? How do we view what God says in his word? I think oftentimes, I myself and hopefully you if you're like me to some degree, we view it as a have to. We have to obey God. We have to do what God says in his word. Instead, I think this truth, this new passion, this new heart, I think allows us to, to shift gears a little bit. It becomes a get to as opposed to a have to. It becomes a get-to as opposed to a have-to because God has given us a soft heart that not only is, pl- is, is flexible and soft towards his will, but is inclined towards his will. It delights in him. By way of illustration, I like to think of it this way. Shall I forgive me for sharing this illustration? Here it goes. So sometimes when I get home from work, and uh, I oftentimes get home get work get I oftentimes get home from work, and Shelly has dinner on. She has dinner cooking. She started it. She knows probably well in advance what, what we're having for dinner. And so oftentimes I'll come home and we'll say hi. How was your day? Small pleasantries. And she's starting on on dinner. She's cooking. And so I say, hey, what's for dinner? And depending upon what she says, sometimes my countenance is brighter. Or sometimes it's not as bright. And it's not because her cooking is bad when I don't like it. It's just we have tastes. We have preferences. There are things that my tongue really delight in. And there are things that my tongue just kind of endures, you know. And so when I come home and I say, hey, honey, what's for dinner? And she says something to the effect of, we're having salad for dinner. Or she says, we're having vegetables, all vegetables for dinner. It's not like I don't like her salads. They're wonderful, honey. Very good. Wonderful. I want to be good when I'm home with you. Your salads are awesome. Uh, and the vegetables, when you make them, they're so tasty. Okay, but, but when, I go home, the, when I go home and I hear it's a salad night, it's a vegetable night, my taste buds are not just, they're not bent that way. Like, I just don't crave salad all the time. And I don't just crave vegetables. You know what I crave? I crave meat, okay? 
I want a steak, or I want some chicken, or I want some pork, or beef stew, or whatever. And I also crave bread or pastas. Oh, that's, that's lovely. That's what, I, that's what I crave. And so on nights when I come home and I say, what's for dinner? And she says, it's a salad night. Oftentimes my countenance, okay, thanks honey for making dinner. You know, it's great and I don't say anything about it. And sometimes she calls me on it. Don't give me that look, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be healthy, right? I want you to be healthy. And so oftentimes on those nights, it's kind of a, it's a have-to mentality. You know, it's, it's, it's a good-for-me thing. It's good for me to eat salads. It's good for me to eat vegetables. It's good for me. And, and I have to, okay? So that's my mentality. But on the nights when I come home and I say, Shelly, what's for dinner? And she said, we're having fajitas for dinner. And my mouth smiles and my countenance warms and I say, oh, I love fajitas, you know? Or she says, oh, hey, we're, you know, we're having, take your pick, steak, or, or whatever it is. And, and, and then it's not just a have to, right? It's not just I have to eat dinner. It's, it's not just, it's good for me. You know, I, I'm going to eat this because it's good for me. No, it is good for me. And I do have to because she made it. But, it. but it's more than that. I want to. So dinner on steak night, it's not a I have to. It's an I get to. I get to eat this. And this is a similar illustration, I think, of the Christian life. When we view God's commands, when we are born again, when we have a new heart, a new passion, when we, when we view God's commands at the deepest level, it's not like it's an I have to night. It's not like coming home and saying, oh, we're having salad for dinner. It's healthy for me. It's good for me to obey God's commands, and I should because he says so. Okay, th- and we should do that. But, but it's more than that. It's a oh, I get to do that. I get to do what you say. I get to not do what you hope prohibit. And so when we read the scripture and it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, what that means is that at three o'clock in the, in the night, and I'm not at all good at this, but at 3 a.m. when my daughter's crying out, I, I, part of me wants to grumble and complain. But what I know because I have a new heart is that when the scripture says, don't grumble, it's not just I, it's good for me not to grumble. Inherently, there's a part of me this new heart that, that wants to not grumble because I want to obey God and it's good for me and I want it. It's in my taste buds. Or so when the scripture says, let, let no unwholesome word proceed from the lips of your mouth, it's not just salad night. It's not just it would be good if I spoke wholesome and encouraging words. No, it's something that I desire to do. It's a get to because my heart has been changed. And so when we come across the prohibition, it says, be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. Don't get mad quickly. Don't, don't blow steam. It's not just a, yeah, that would be good for my family, and I would yell at my kids less, and my wife would like me more, and it's good for me. And that's all true, but because we've been given a new heart, because we've been given a new heart, it's something we get to do. It gives us joy. And so it changes, then, how we view obedience. Obedience is not salad night. Obedience for the Christian is steak night. It, view, it changes how we view scripture. Think of it this way. We've learned before in lessons prior that part of the new covenant, God promises to write his laws on our hearts and on our minds. That is, it's something we inherently desire to do. It's, it's in there already. It's not God saying externally, I've written down these things you should and shouldn't do, and here they are. No, it's something inside of us, and it propels us to obedience. If God then has written his law, has written his word in our hearts and in our minds, how then does that change how we view scripture, how we view obeying scripture? Have you ever considered 
the possibility that when we open up, uh, open up our, our text and when we read scripture at church or in our devotionals or in our Bible study or when we listen to it in the radio when we're driving to work, whenever we encounter scripture, have you considered the fact that what God is doing because he's written your his law on your heart and on your mind, that what he's doing is not just giving you prohibitions or is not just giving you commands. He's showing you what this new heart actually wants. He's revealing to you what you at the deepest level of, a bo- of being a born-again new creation, what you really want. And so you see the word in a completely different light because he's revealing what he's already written on your heart. And so number one, it changes how we view obedience. It's steak night. It's not salad night anymore. But secondly, if it changes how we view obedience to God, conversely, it changes how we view disobedience, right? It, it also changes how we view sin. Because if it changes how we view obedience, it's something we get to do, it's something we want to do, not simply, simply something we have to do, then it also changes our, our, our hardwire hearts. And so it changes how we view sin at the heart level. It's no longer satisfying. It's no longer supremely desirable, but it's something we hate. And so it shifts from, I shouldn't do this. That's how we oftentimes view sin, and it's correct. We shouldn't let an unwholesome word come out of our mouth. We shouldn't grumble. We shouldn't be angry, right? It says, be slow to anger. We shouldn't do those things, but I think this truth, it brings us from a shouldn't to something else. It brings us from, I simply shouldn't sin, to, I don't want to sin. It moves us from, this is bad for me, to, I hate that, and I don't want to do that any longer. Now, you may be thinking in your mind, as I am thinking and have thought as I was preparing this, is this true? I mean, is this real in reality? Because it seems kind of high, high in the sky, but from day to day, when you go to work and when you interact with your kids and with your, with your classmates and, and your, your coworkers and whatever it is, is this, does this really meet the ground test? I mean, is it legitimate? Do I, is that really true of, of my heart? If I'm a, if I'm a Christian, if I'm, if I'm born again? And then you might be thinking a second question. You know, I don't always desire to obey God. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, I feel like there's a war within me. I want to obey God, but then there's some other part of me that doesn't. There's some other part of me that kind of enjoys sinning. There's a part of me that kind of, kind of enjoys blowing my steam and getting angry. There's kind of a part of me that, you know, for a little bit enjoys when I, when I say something that I shouldn't, right? There's a part of me, and, and so you're asking this, well, how does that, how does that work? I, I, I ask that. Turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Romans. So flip ahead into your New Testament to Romans chapter 7. I just want to look at a few verses here. Romans seven twenty one through 23. It answers this question. What about this dilemma? There's, there's a battle in us if we're a Christian. There's a battle. Part of us wants to sin and part of us doesn't want to sin. I want you to notice the language that Paul uses. Notice the language of Romans 7. He describes this battle, but notice what is dominant And then notice what is not. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Just a portion of this text. 7, 21 through 23. In verse 21, it's kind of a summary of 
this inward battle that he's been describing. If you're familiar with the text, he, he goes on to this, this kind of a rant. He says, man, the things that I really want to do, I want to obey, I, I don't do those things. And the things that I really don't want to do, the sin, sometimes I do them. And he goes on this, this kind of back and forth, and it's kind of confusing. But then he sums it up in verse 21. He says this, so I find this law at work. That is, there's a principle at work within me as a Christian. I find this law at work within me. And then he states it. Although I want to do good, notice, who wants to do good? He does. I. I want to do good. That is describing this new passion, this new heart. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. It's there, but in, in a sense, it's, it's with him, but it's not him. Notice this, this kind of ambiguity. He really wants to do good, but then there's evil kind of with him, and it's right there. Verse 22, for in my inner being, I what? What's the, what's the term? For in my inner being, I delight. Those, that's a term of affection and desire. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. That's the same I that wants to do good. I want to do good. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. There's a passion to obey God, but then there's a but. And it's the, the but that we've just been describing. Verse 23, but I see another law at work in me. That is, there's another principle at work in, in me here. And what is it doing? Notice, waging war against the law or the principle of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Quite simply, what I want us to see here is the point is this. Paul says that as a born-again Christian, as a person who has a new passion, uh, what is inwardly true of us in our innermost being, in who we really are in Christ, it desires to do good, we want to obey God, and we have these passions for God. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're always fighting this sin principle. Uh, The Bible calls it our flesh. That is the part of us that is kind of left over from the, the old person that we were before Christ. And that's always with us. We'll always have this battle. It's normative. Earlier, we didn't read it, but Paul says that he hates sin. That's the term that he uses in Romans 7. He says, the things that I, I, I shouldn't do and I do them, I hate it. Notice the language. If you have this new heart, this new passion, in the deepest sense, when we sin, it's not just I shouldn't do it. It's not good for me. It's not good for my family. Although that's true. It's God, I hate it when I do that. That's what the born-again Christian thinks. Not immediately, sometimes, but it's there. I hate it. I hate sin. And then he makes this statement. It's, it's interesting. Earlier in Romans 7, he says, he says, it's no longer I myself. He says, when I sin, quote, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living within me. What, Paul? You're saying that when you sin, you don't sin? You, you, you backing out of accountability and responsibility here? No, that's not what he's doing. When you sin, you sin. When I'm a, as a Christian, when I sin, I sin, okay? But what he's saying is that really who I am, really this, this new passion, this new creation that God has given, that's, that's not who sins. It's the sin living within me. I no longer do it. And so there's just, there's just a distinction between who we are and what we do. So, I want to illustrate this by uh, one more food item. It's just kind of a food day, you know. Uh, can you guys see what this is? Any, w- anybody know what this is? It's, it's candy, yeah. It is a lint 
truffle. Excellent. It is a truffle. Um, we love these things, and they're really, uh, they don't stay long when they're in our house. At Christmas time, uh, our, both of our parents know that we like these truffles, and so we get just bags and bags of them, and so we have to freeze them, and we have to give them away because we will just tear into them in a day. Uh, they're wonderful, so I'm just going to open it up and show you. I don't know if you know what a truffle is. It's a wonderful little invention. Uh, <laughs> it's basically chocolate on the outside. It's yummy. And uh, kind of hard, kind of chocolate that you would imagine, like a candy bar. But on the inside, they put more chocolate. Oh, it's, it's great. Uh, sometimes it's chocolate. They, they have different flavors. They put like a creamy chocolate kind of thing. Now, I don't even know what this one is. It's blue. It's yummy. I don't know. So, but th- it's like double chocolate, right? And so on the outside, when you first bite into it, what do you taste? This crunchy, chocolatey layer. But when you get to the inside, really the, 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 the crux of what's in there is just creamy, sweet goodness. Oh, thank you, God, for these things. It's good. So in, in a sense, I want to use this to illustrate what we've been talking about. As an, as an unbeliever, when, before we come to place our faith in Christ, when we have this cold, unyielding, lifeless, stone kind of heart, uh, sin to us is like this lint truffle. When we first get into it, our first experience of it is, is tasty. It tastes good. We bite into sin, and the outside of it, when we initially do it, tastes pretty good, just like this chocolate covering. tastes really good. But then when you get to the inside of it, when you're uh, not a believer, it continues to taste good to you. I mean, when you, there are ramifications and effects and all of, that, all of that, whether it's good or bad. Sin as a whole is just doubly good. At, at the beginning and all the way through, you like it. Just like when you eat one of these things. Boy, I could eat it right now, but I'm not. So that's kind of like sin for an unbeliever. But sin for a Christian is, is different, I think. Sin for a Christian, and I've used this illustration before, but it's a good one, so I'll use it again. Sin for a Christian is like chocolate-covered Alpo. Yes, I said Alpo. That is dog food. Um, you know, the kind that's hard, or maybe even the kind that's soft and just smells nasty. Just imagine sin that way. It's, it's dog food, inherent, but then you pour a little chocolate over top, and you make it look very much like this. Chocolate-covered Alpo. I've actually done it once before. Looks kind of, kind of like this, not as round, but it's chocolatey and sweet on the outside, and sin for a Christian is like that, I think. We, we bite into it, we get into it, and that first initial taste of sin Boy, it tastes good. Uh, there's a part of us called the flesh. The Bible calls it our, our old man. We still like that. And it's, a, it's, it's true of us. I mean, our flesh is our flesh. And we still desire sin. And so we take a bite of sin, regardless of whatever it is. And it, it, initially, we taste the chocolate. And it satisfies the flesh. And it says, you like that. And you want more of it, right? But, but when you bite into a chocolate-covered Alpo, Hmm. It doesn't quite do the same as when you bite into one of these. Because when you bite into one of these, the second layer is also sweet. And it's really good. And you want more. But when you bite into a chocolate-covered Alpo, although the outside is sweet, the, 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 the main part of it, what does it taste like? Dog food. <laughs> it doesn't taste very good. It's, it's not satisfying. And in a similar way, when the Christian sins, there's a part of it that, that, that satisfies our flesh, but on the inside, our new heart just does not have a taste for it. Our new regenerate heart just does not have a taste for sin. It's repulsive. It makes us want to throw up as if you were to take a big old bite out of a chocolate-covered Alpo. And that is why 
this new passion, our new heart, changes, number one, how we view obedience. It's not salad night, it's steak night. But it also changes how we view sin. It's not just a, I shouldn't. It's not just, it's bad for me. It's a, I hate it. I don't like that anymore. So in conclusion, what we've seen today is the third provision of this new covenant. It's called a new passion. We find it in all sorts of places, but primarily in the book of Ezekiel. We've seen it portrayed. It's a stone heart removed and a heart of flesh given in. And we've seen it performed. It changes how we view obedience, and it changes how we view disobedience. In short, God has given us a heart transplant. So we're going to close this morning by doing this. There's a clip that I hope we have ready to go back there. It's a clip from a movie called Despicable Me. It's a, it's a cartoon. It's very good. I think it's, it's enjoyable. Uh, the basic thing that you need to know about Despicable Me, this is the very last scene, or one of the very last scenes of the movie. Uh, in Despicable Me, there is a villain. He's a bad guy. He wants to conquer the world, and he has all these funny little minions, right? That's how the movie goes. Um, he's evil to the core, Um, But then he's introduced to these three little orphan girls, and he thinks that he can use them to take over the world. Well, instead what happens is that they, they, they end up changing him, and they end up changing his heart, and he ends up adopting them and becoming a father to them. So I'm going to watch this scene, and then we'll apply it, and then we'll be done. So let's watch this together. (laughs) 